Hello everyone and welcome to Talk Sense to Me, where we take on a topic and try to understand it from multiple angles. We research the topic as much as time allows. Let's be real, there'll never be enough hours in the week or month to research all of the information on any topic. So we work with what we have within the limited time. So you are welcome and invited to join the conversation and add your take. This podcast is about trying to make sense of life and the issues we have to deal with, acknowledging that our individual experiences and knowledge does not cover the full gamut of any and all of what we discuss. But we are trying to give it a go, so welcome to the conversation. This episode, we're talking about bullying, a fascinating topic. So I'll share my initial view. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lucy Corcoran, who is a psychology lecturer and researcher and has been conducting research on school bullying and cyber aggression since 2006. After our discussion, I'll see if my views on bullying has changed as the theme of the podcast is share your thoughts, research, and see if you think any different on the subject. So my initial thoughts are that bullying is a harsh and instinctive way to control others and weed out weakness. To get rid of bullying, you'd probably need a systematic approach with many people involved in the environment where the bullying is actually occurring. I am unsure if a systematic approach would work in the context of work in school. I think it would, but bullying occurs in the home as well. And that is a lot more difficult as people tend to be private about their family affairs and don't tend to seek outside help. So bullying from a family perspective seems pretty grim and hopeless in my view. But let's get into some articles on the topic. I found an interesting article from Center of the American Experiment on bullying where they presented the argument that liberals don't argue or present facts They bully those who disagree with them. I'll put this article in the show notes. Actually, when I googled liberal views on bullying, I came across quite a few articles of conservatives claiming that liberals bully them for being conservative, which I thought, yes, liberals 100% bully conservatives for their views, but so do conservatives bully liberals for their views. So that was unhelpful. However, I came across a better article from the Wall Street Journal telling the story of Kevin Kernicke, who was an employee at Google. And when his conservative views became public knowledge, this is what the article said happened. Quote, he was given an official warning from human resources about conduct deemed disrespectful and insubordinate. Mr. Kernicke, 41, spent much of the next three years battling Google over perceived violations and pressing his contention that right-leaning employees being treated unfairly according to interviews, documents, and copies of posts on Google's internal message board. In one example from 2017, he reported to Human Resources that a manager publicly asked on a board about employees holding views like Mr. Kernicke's, quote, can't we just fire the poisonous asshole already? That to me sounds very unprofessional and disrespectful and quite frankly, bullying. In June 2018, Mr. Kernicke was fired. Google told Mr. Kernicke in a termination letter that he was let go for multiple violations for company policies, including improperly downloading company information and misuse of the remote access software system. Mr. Kernicke, who hasn't spoken publicly about his status at Google, denies all that. He says that he was fired for being an outspoken conservative in a famously liberal Silicon Valley company. Quote, historically, there's been a lot of bullying at Google, says Mr. Kernicke. 
There's a big political angle and they treat the two sides very different. A Google spokesperson, Jen Kaiser, declined to comment on the specific incident described in the article involving Mr. Kernicke and other employees. However, she said, we enforce our work policies without regard to political viewpoint. Um, after studying psychology for four years, I find that very hard to believe. Human beings are biased, full stop. And we tend to give more leeway to people who are like us or who we feel are on our team. So if your disposition is to be liberal or lefty or conservative or right wing, you just naturally side with your own. Like tribalism is a very powerful thing. I should probably do an episode on that. But yeah, I'm really unsure of the accuracy of her statement. To me, it seems unlikely, given that a manager publicly asked on a board about employees holding views like Mr. Kernicke's, quote, can't we just fire the poisonous asshole already? Personally, I don't know what a person's political views has to do with job performance. That being said, it can impact working relationships with others. And in this instance, it seems like it certainly has. But the article didn't get into specifics on what Carnegie said that actually wound people up. But the whole thing did seem one-sided. According to the Wall Street Journal article, Chief Executive Sunna Paiki had earlier assured him that all viewpoints were welcome. But quote, time and time again, we see actions that contradict free and open expression. In a work environment, Realistically, I don't know how much free expression you actually have. The company historically has tolerated and even encouraged arguments on hot button issues. Employees globally walked out last year to protest multi-million dollar exit package for executives accused of sexual misconduct and Google subsequently changed some of its conduct policies. So that is an interesting development and one that naturally leads to me to discussion, but that will be for another podcast. I'm not sure that Kernicke's firing amounts to bullying, but that manager's comment on the message board certainly does. I'll put the link to the Wall Street Journal article in the show notes for anyone who is interested. I'm really not sure how much change of policy impacts change of behavior. I'll be researching that as well. On a personal level, I think the way to deal with bullying is to fight back and show that you're not a pushover. That said, I never dealt with bullying myself, so technically from experience, I really don't know what I'm talking about. However, I did have a really horrible experience of which I am deeply ashamed to this day, where I joined these girls in my class to bully another one when I was like 13, 14 years old. And the thing is, I had nothing against this girl that I helped bully. It was me being a stupid kid wanting to impress these girls who weren't even my close friends just acquaintances really, but it does speak to the complex nature of bullying. And the girl bullied was no weak link. Like today, she is a successful businesswoman, owns her own bar and is doing great. So let's get into it and see what the research says as I chat with Dr. Lucy. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing. Being teaching in psychology for the last six years and um, a master's in cyberbullying and schoolbullying. It was a master's by research, um, which I found extremely interesting, and that led into a PhD in the same area. The bulk of my research is really focused on schoolbullying, aggression, cyberaggression, and how that relates to things like psychological health, empathy, stress and coping, 
and it's focused mainly on primary school and secondary school children, mainly secondary school. And with children, what do you find are some of the common factors amongst bullies? Like, is there a common denominator in terms of what kind of person bullies? Yeah, actually, my my first piece of research I did in this area looked at personality of anyone, you know, the, the non-involved, those who are bullying, those who are being victimized, um, really the whole population. And we didn't find particularly, I think we found that there was higher neuroticism in those who were victimized. But when you look at the bullies, and the literature, there is really conflicting perspectives on what the bully is like. Um, and of course, there is no one type. I suppose one thing that tends to come out is that children who are involved in bullying are at greater risk for poor school performance. And long term, sounds dramatic, but long term, those who bully, and I think you could probably say those who are bullying in a chronic sort of ongoing way, they're more, that's more predictive of abusive relationships later on. So it might be even parent abuse. So not having the most functional relationships, having issues around poor mental health, struggling with solving social issues in a way that's not aggressive. They will be some of the characteristics. But when it comes to self-esteem, which has been a real buzzword over the last 10 years or so, there's probably this idea out there that the bullies necessarily have low self-esteem and that they're bullying in order to raise their self-esteem. And I was just reading something, you know, that I thought was worth considering that was suggesting that maybe bullies actually have sort of inflated but fragile self-esteem. You know, the kind of person who has grandiose notions about themselves. I was about to say, this reminds me of uh, grandiose narcissists. Yeah, and to me it sounds sort of like the stereotype of the dictator, like the, you know, the authoritarian leader, that they have these notions, but they're very sensitive to any perceived slight um, and tend to be aggressive when they think they're being undervalued or not recognized. I think that's really interesting. I don't necessarily think everyone who bullies has that character. But what I'd say from what's known about bullying in the literature is it's very conflicted. They're very contradictory findings as to who is most likely to be a bully. And what about who is most likely to be bullied? Is it just a neuroticism? Is that the only common denominator? No, I mean, it's one of the problems with the research is that you don't necessarily get to see if the bullying is necessarily causing something or if it's predicting, uh, if these characteristics are predicting victimization. Do you know what I mean? So it can be hard to know if they, if someone's self-esteem is reduced by victimization or if that is what's making them vulnerable to victimization. But I would say that the characteristics associated with it, you know, one of the standout things would be not having a single good friend. That, that makes somebody quite vulnerable. But there's one of the first researchers in bullying, a guy called Dan Alveus, he talked about that the language back in the 70s and 80s was very different and he used the term whipping boys, which sounds, you know, a bit inappropriate now, but he had this characterization of the victimized boys because all of that research tended to focus on boys. The characterization was that they were sort of introverted, avoided confrontation, you know, shied away from any kind of robust interactions. And since then, I suppose there's been a whole load of traits looked at in regards to victimization but again in reality anyone can be victimized you know the, the most attractive socially able 
intelligent child in, in the class can be targeted. But, but there's certainly, you know, something like being socially isolated would make a child quite vulnerable. Is it like this instinct to weed out any weak links in the group and try to eliminate it? Is it some kind of like evolutionary, some kind of weird behavior from ancient times where you can't tolerate weakness because it might be a danger to the group? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and that, that has definitely been proposed that it is a kind of survival of the fittest. I, I think there's so many ways you can look at it, of what is causing bullying. The dynamic of the group, you know, I was actually just talking to a group of students recently. They're all in their 20s and 30s, mostly these students. And we were talking about bullying and, and one guy in the class was saying, you know, is it realistic to think you can ever really stamp out bullying? He said it in, in his school, it was very clear that there was a weakest link, for want of a nicer phrase, and that boy who joined the school in first year would just be hammered until he left the school. And when he was gone, the next weakest link was identified. And, you know, it might not have been a very conscious decision-making process but that was the dynamic in that school so I do think there's an element of scapegoating and attack what what uh, is seen to be unacceptable and does the way that the school administration and teachers deal with it make a difference at all hugely <laughs> I think it's a, a lot of the time the way in, in fact almost exclusively the way bullying is dealt with is policy documents you know state very clearly it's unacceptable and these are the repercussions have an anti-bullying program in place in the school and it's called a whole school approach usually where you treat bullying as a systemic problem and therefore you have a system-based solution so you try to target bullying at every level in the classroom um, so not just with the pupils, but with the teachers, with the principal, with the special education assistants, uh, with the cafeteria staff, everybody in that community and outside the school gates has a responsibility. But it has, by, by that, uh, by the nature of that, it sort of has to be top down. So the principal, yeah, they have to be leading in that way. So you do, I, I remember going into a school to conduct research and the principal saying to me, there's no problem with bullying here. Um, there's no boys school he said the boys it was all boys and he said they just call each other gay or they slag each other's mothers and to him that was just friendly banter and no problems there and of you know a sample of maybe 12 or 13 schools that school was really quite poor in terms of bullying there was high rates of victimization reported by the boys so i thought that was a good example of where the principal's just lack of urgency about it was you know was bearing bad fruit yeah i wonder what makes some people eager to get on board and be proactive and then others are like nah it's grand yeah i do wonder about that myself is it an area that you've ever researched no and it would actually be really interesting because I've done a little bit of research with school principals, but that's never a question I've thought to ask. I can even think of going into schools and you chat, you get chatting to some teachers or some principals, and it's often teachers who want to talk to, to me, say, as the researcher coming in. They just want to chat about their own experience quite often. And sometimes they're being bullied as teachers by students or by, you know, a principal or a vice principal. That's a really interesting question, I think. What is it that drives that? And um, what's been the most interesting thing that you've discovered in your research on either cyber aggression or just bullying in general? The most interesting insights have come from talking to children or even just talking to, to principals because generally in psychology, as you know, it's 
a lot of statistics and um, trying to find correlations and all of these things. But when you sit down and talk to people, you get more of an insight into their unique experience. And talking to, I, I had one small study that I, I really got a lot from with primary schools. They were in disadvantaged areas of, of the country. I went in and talked to primary school children, 10 and 11 years of age, and Rather than getting an anonymous questionnaire back when you actually sit with children and they're explaining what their day-to-day life is like, and, and these kids were talking about their cyber experiences, it touches you a lot more than the stats. And, and they had all kinds of experiences. Some of them I thought were maybe emotionally neglected at home. There was no moderation of what they were doing online. You know, they describe the boys in particular were describing dealing with anger issues and they described some of them described not their parents as their greatest sources of comfort but the special um special needs assistant or their granny you know that that's where they were going for comfort and guidance actually not the parents so there were sad aspects to that too yeah for sure i've always found qualitative research so much more interesting than quantitative personally not only to read but also to conduct like you said you get so much more out of it because of the personal element to it is there a psychological difference between being bullied online versus face-to-face? I think there has to be. One of the major things that is different about it is that you're sort of constantly accessible online. And when you think about the child who was being bullied in school, even in 1998, let's say, they go home at four o'clock or at half two and they get a breather till the next morning or they take the summer holidays. It really can invade their life in a much bigger way. Would children have enough self-control to just get off certain apps where other people are accessing them and giving them abuse? I think I think there's all kinds of responses, even, even with children. I would say for many children, it's very hard not to look at what's being said. Yeah, the impulse control isn't there the way it is developed when you're an adult, for sure. Yeah, and others sadly can be kind of naive as to what's going on I I even you know they might not actually see it for what it is and teacher was telling me she sort of picked up on the fact that a a boy who was 12 or 13 just starting secondary school didn't realize he was being insulted by his peers so he was putting videos up on YouTube of himself singing and dancing and the kids in school were pretending to be fans but were actually ridiculing him and I would say I think you're right I think probably there's a difficulty in just stepping away and you're you'd be sort of eaten up with curiosity what are they doing now when i'm not there what have you found helps people to recover from bullying or cyberbullying that's another question actually that there isn't great evidence as to what helps people what has been explored quite a lot is how do people cope with bullying children and adolescents and again that research is quite limited because a lot of researchers have asked what do you do when this happens or what would you do but they haven't actually gone further to see was it effective in stopping the problem or in protecting your psychological health so what does seem to work is social support there's fairly good evidence that if you can confide in someone seek comfort from friends or family that's quite a buffer for protecting your your mental health really being kind of solution focused so not 
not passively allowing it to go on, not blaming yourself. That also seems to be good if you can. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a solution in terms of how do I solve this? Or how do I stop this happening? It can be a solution in terms of how do I mind myself? How do I not let it overwhelm me? And also then being a bit familiar with how do you, again, it's, I suppose, sort of solution focused, but technical strategies if you're being uh, victimized online, like saving evidence and knowing how to block someone or report someone. But of course, that has its, its limitations as well. What seems to be a pitfall is the helplessness feeling of I can't do anything about this and therefore I'll do nothing or becoming aggressive in, re in response. That all seems to escalate the problem sometimes. So fighting back doesn't really help. It's again, everyone's situation is incredibly unique. You know, there can be a bit of controversy about this sometimes because a parent will often say, give them a dig back, you know, stand up to them. And, and that can work. It stops the problem sometimes. But like I heard an anecdote recently of a little kid. I think she was only six or seven. She was being really badly bullied by a group of girls. And at a certain point, going to the teachers wasn't helping. The school weren't responding. So her dad said to her, give them a thump if they come near you again. And she did. And she broke another child's nose. You know, there's, there's that kind of, well, was that good advice? It stopped the bullying. But she also got suspended. I think that's really unfair because if she had gone to the teachers and to administrators for support and nothing was done and she hadn't felt like she had no other recourse other than to get physical back, mm. why, you know what I mean? I feel like the teachers who ignored this should have been suspended, not the child. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I totally see your point. It's really difficult and it can, there's no doubt it can be effective sometimes. Let's say it's a, a boy who's, who's going to punch back against a group. He could get an absolute hiding in the process of trying to stand up for himself, he could be humiliated further, but also he could seriously hurt someone else. And when there's some kind of policy in school to reduce bullying, are the parents of the children involved brought into a conversation with teachers? Sometimes. Most experts would say it works best when everyone buys into it and contributes to it. So you want student voice. You don't want to have this completely top-down policy where, okay, I'm being given the rules to follow, but I've had no part in creating them. But one thing, you know, teachers and principals complain about a lot is that they actually can't get the parents to turn up to, to say their piece. They don't turn up to information evenings. They don't engage. And so they're sort of on their own. So it's not easy. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. What do you find are the various forms and complications of cyber victimization? Well, I think the form, the, the different forms it takes, I'm starting to broaden my thinking about that because when you look at the research on cyberbullying, it focuses almost exclusively on children and teenagers. And it's kind of a set of behaviors that is abusive. In terms of cyber aggression, there's a lot of pretty brutal stuff going on online that doesn't fall under cyberbullying what is really concerning. At the moment, the last few days, I've been looking at quite a lot of content online about the idea of cancel culture. And somebody says, somebody complained uh, to his management that he had liked certain tweets. Now, he hadn't actually tweeted anything himself. He had just liked these tweets. And they were calling for him to be removed from his position. He actually was about to undergo a disciplinary hearing 
uh, before lawyers got involved. Yeah, and and the argument they made was that his his freedom of speech needed to be protected, so the university backed off. How about his freedom of thought? I mean, Jesus Christ, because like what they're actually policing isn't what he said or what he retweeted. It's what he thought. He liked something. Yeah, wrong thing. It's wrong thing. <laughs> it reminds me because I'm reading this book now, uh, Stalin's Daughter, about the life of Svetlana Alyuva. What the author is describing there is it got to a point where Stalin wasn't just content in controlling people's behaviors and making sure that they were supporting the party in the way that he approved. He tried to control people's thoughts. If people were said to be saying, thinking certain things, off to the gulags with you. This line of thinking I find very disturbing and very potentially dangerous. This idea of trying to control other people's thoughts, it's quite fanatical. Oh yeah, I totally agree. and. I, I agree with you completely. I, I read about the Gulags last year. I read Solzhenitsyn's memoirs, if that's the right word. Yeah, it's it's frightening. And I think sometimes if you actually say that, it's like you're being very extreme and dramatic. But what else do you call it? Exactly. I, I've been listening to um, a couple of Aisha Camby. She's been popping up a lot on Twitter recently. And I started you know, listening to some of her interviews. And she's actually a stylist. But she really is a philosopher, you know. She talks a lot about cancel culture and the problems with wokeness and how those things can become problematic. And she's really, I suppose she's kind of influenced by Stoicism and um, other philosophers from different, from different orientations. But she's a very refreshing voice. I certainly don't have the solution. I'm not sure she does. But one thing I think contributes to that frenzy is, you know how people describe Twitter as being like um, an echo chamber, you know, that you're, you're getting your own views reflected back to you constantly. And so you start to feel like the masses agree with you. I think that's problematic. Exactly. Because even if people have bad ideas and dangerous ideas, the way to move them away from that is to have conversations. It's like, okay, tell me the messed up thing that you think and let's mm. work through it. But if you just suppress it, they're not going to stop thinking it. And I think a thought unexpressed has more potential to become something dangerous than something that is expressed and is pushed back against with other ideas. Because then you have to kind of think through your stuff and justify what you're thinking if you're given the opportunity to engage in dialogue about your ideas. That's a point exactly that I heard Aisha Kambi make the other day. She was saying, you know, you have to get things wrong in order to sharpen your ideas. So we all need to be allowed to yeah. make mistakes and fail. And I think what you said is absolutely true. When a thought is you know, suppressed, it's, gonna, it's going to come out anyway in some form and maybe not in the way we want it to come out. What do you think are the reasons that people engage in online aggression? Is it just that they're pissed off and they want to spew their rage to whomever or is it like specifically targeted towards objects of hatred or what is it? I think there can be a lot of scapegoating, you know, you, you say objects of hatred. I think that's a big part of it. There's a really good chapter uh, I read recently. It's actually, it ended up, I edited a book uh, with a, a colleague called Connor McGuffin, and one of the chapters was written by Stephen Minton. He was a professor in Trinity. I now can't think where he's moved to, but Stephen wrote this chapter on what might drive cyber aggression. And he was saying that he took the ideas of 
Conrad Lorenz, who was really an ethologist who looked at animal aggression in particular. And Lorenz talked about how, you know, animals are sort of inhibited to use their aggression because they put themselves in, in danger when they attack. You know, they growl or they arch their back or they have all these gestures that say, I'm going to attack, so you better back off. And they'll only actually attack when they need to. And Lorenz was saying, you know, human beings have lost our inhibitions in some settings because we, we don't have the same vulnerability. We can use our technology, we can use a gun or a missile or, you know, we can just hit the switch and do huge damage in another part of the world. And so he was saying we don't fully see our, the consequences of what we do and our inhibitions are lowered because we're not as likely to be face counterattack. And so... Stephen was taking this idea and he was saying, well, you know, we're using technology. We don't necessarily see what happens when we send the nasty tweet or post the embarrassing picture of someone. And we don't necessarily face that backlash. That's exactly what it is. There's no threat. Yeah, it's very safe on the other side of the That's fence. That's it. Um, Lucy, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today and getting some of your insights into the psychology of bullying. After speaking to Dr. Lucy, a few points came out. One, people bully for different reasons. And there's a difference in how bullying plays out between children and adults. But the question that Dr. Lucy and I hovered over, and it's a good one to try to find an answer to, is why do some authorities, be they in school or in the workplace, shy away from trying to minimize bullying? And why do some try to take it head on? I suspect like most things, it's a variety of factors from individual attitudes about bullying, companies and schools doing a tick box exercise to cover themselves legally, to, to people whose approach comes from a genuine desire to understand how to stop bullying. But what are the indicators that anti-bullying policy works in either environment? This has left me with more questions than answers. One interesting piece was that there was a higher level of neuroticism in those victimized. Neuroticism is a psychology term having to do with sensitivity to negative emotion. But also, she spoke about poor mental health and difficulty solving social issues. And in addition to not having a good friend as a marker for vulnerability to being bullied. Which is so sad, but it makes sense as there are so many of us who have not grown up in functional homes with good social skills being modeled. Speaking of good social skills being modeled, one of the points Dr. Lucy brought out was that animals don't attack unless they feel the need to. While that's mostly true, improperly socialized dogs, for instance, can and do attack for absolutely no reason. Last month, we were devastated in our house when one of our little dogs was taken away from us. A larger dog just charged for her and chewed her like a toy until his owner managed to get him off her. Poor wee thing, despite being taken straight to the surgery, she succumbed to her injuries and died later that night. It was heart-wrenching. Point is, this dog came looking for someone to mess up. There were no sniffs, no barks, no growls, no indicators of hostility. It was a full charge towards the little one and done. Poor socialization doesn't only affect human aggression, but also animals. Being poorly socialized might be an anecdote to bullying, but at what stage is it too late? And if the new socialization is not being reinforced at home, would it even make a difference? As for the person being bullied, having social support seems to be a good way to cope according to Dr. Lucy's research. However, what recourse can someone take in a setting where they don't have support? 
In school, this seems dire. At least as an adult, you can go the legal route and try to find some balance there. Dr. Lucy also pointed out, we don't fully see the consequences of what we do, and that should give us all something to reflect on. And after speaking with Dr. Lucy and researching different articles on the topic, has my mind changed? I still think fighting back is the right approach to someone being unfairly aggressive towards you. The question is how? In school with young children, that is a really tough one because kids haven't yet developed negotiation skills. In fact, most adults haven't either. In the workplace, it seems having good negotiation skills is a necessity, especially after reading the Wall Street Journal article, which I recommend everyone checking out. People just don't seem willing to want to understand each other, and that's not helpful. But what has come up in this venture is that bullying is a tactic of people who have not learned how to intelligently articulate themselves nor been properly socialized to express themselves in a functional way. We touch on children having anger issues with little to no guidance on how to deal with their anger. Being poorly or negligently parented is a real problem in the world, which clearly leads to social difficulties later in life. So how do we as a society, as a community, better support one another in these things? Big Brother Big Sister program is international. We have one here in Ireland. And in 2005, a report by Big Brothers Big Sisters Ireland, the results of the evaluation on whether the program was effective were largely in favor of the program's methods. It found that participants were less likely to start using drugs or alcohol, were less likely to hit someone, had improved school attendance and performance, had improved attitudes towards completing schoolwork, and had improved peer and family relationships. This is according to a research study by Tierney from 1995, and I'll put the links to that study also in the show notes. How about programs in your neighborhood and online? What is available out there of the mentorships for both children and adults? There's loads of mentorship for entrepreneurs. But what about mentorship support groups in our day-to-day -day life and struggles? Well, I've found quite a few and I'll link them in the show notes. I think we are moving to an era of better support for one another. It's not perfect, but it is there if we reach out. So I just want to thank everyone for listening and do join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talk Sense to Me, and share your thoughts and concerns and comments. And until the next topic, be well, let us know what sense you can make of all of this.